But again, Daniel chapter 9, verse number 24 and 27, looking at uh, 70 weeks prophecy. It says here, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So that's a six-fold plan of God in relation to the 70 weeks, the, the time of the Gentiles. And at, at the, uh, by the time that 70 weeks is over, these six things will be accomplished. Amen. Now, the next verse, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the walls even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you just guide me in this message tonight. I pray, Lord, it would be effective in helping us understand uh, end times, future things. And Lord, of course, the place that Israel has within that economy as well. Lord, help us understand this. In Jesus' name, amen. And so um, we know that these 70 weeks that we're talking about, are 70 sets of seven. So we're looking at 490 years that are determined upon Israel. And that's because they stopped following the Lord when they went into the promised land. The promised land wasn't them, given to them just to enjoy it. They had a purpose there. They were supposed to shine as a light to the Gentiles. But as soon as they began to neglect the Lord and neglect or, or allow the gods of the, of the Canaanites to infiltrate their lives, the Lord says, well, you have no purpose anymore. Uh, you have really no purpose in that land. And so what he did is he took them out uh, because the land wasn't for them just to sit around and do nothing. It was for them to be a light to the world. They were supposed to be a ruling nation. It was supposed to be a kingdom of men on earth that reflected the kingdom of God to man. And that didn't happen. Amen. And so that was a problem. And so he, they, they were taken captivity to Babylon and they were there for 70 years. And we know that 70 years was determined there because they missed uh, that many Sabbaths letting the land rest. You see that in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And so we know that this prophecy here, uh, it, it goes into play after that 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And so when Babylon is taken out of the picture and Persia comes in, immediately this particular uh, prophecy comes into effect with the proclaiming of Cyrus's decree to go rebuild the temple. And so this prophecy is geared towards thy people. That's what it says, the determined upon thy people. And we know that thy people, if you go back to verse number 20, you can easily see that. It says, and whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel... 
So who is my people? Well, Israel is my people. Not, he's not talking about the Gentiles. He's not talking about the heathen. He's talking about a very specific group of people, and that was the people of Israel. And so uh, they didn't follow God for 490 years. They were in the land for 800. Uh, we know that they had to pay back 70 uh, land Sabbaths. And if you would times that by seven, that is 490. So basically 490 years, they weren't keeping the land Sabbaths. And so the Lord got that back by sending them to Babylon for 70 years. Amen. And then after that was done, he chose to now wait again for another 490 years and place them into a time that we call the time of the Gentiles. And you see that in Luke 21, verse 24, it says, this is Jesus speaking here, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so that means that there's a time of restoration. Uh, the time of the Gentiles is a time where the Jerusalem is going to not be built up and Israel will not be restored into their land. But when the time of the Gentiles is over, that's when it'll all be restored. Amen? So they will be restored. Uh, Romans 11 verse 25 says as well, it says, For I would not, brethren that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Amen? And there we have it again, until, until. And so never let somebody tell you that Israel is done. They were, neglect, they were set aside. They're not coming back. Well, then Jesus wouldn't have said until, and then Paul wouldn't have wrote until. Amen? So there is an until, and that's when they're going to be restored. Now, Joel chapter 2, verse number 17, says this, <clears throat> Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the, he that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people." Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will, make no more, uh, I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. Now that has not happened yet, has it? We don't see a fulfillment of that. They are still a reproach among the heathen. It goes on to say, But I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. Now you go to Joel chapter 2 verse 28, it says, and it shall come to pass afterward. So what is he talking about here? In this passage, he's talking about a time where he's going to return blessing to Israel and bring the people back. And then at the end of that chapter, he says, and it shall come to pass afterward, afterward. So when Israel is restored, then this prophecy is going to come to pass. Amen. It says here <clears throat> that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, 
blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Reminds you of the tribulation, amen? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come, amen? So we're talking about the 70th week there. We're talking about tribulation. Now the interesting thing is, remember when Pentecost came and Peter preached a message there and he brought up this passage in Joel. So part of that prophecy that is meant for the end of the tribulation, the Lord already allowed that to take place at Pentecost with the development of the church because he wanted to empower the church to do the work throughout the church age, amen? And so Acts chapter 2, verse 16, it says, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel because they were baptized with the Holy Ghost. And so the Lord poured upon them the Spirit. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness. Have you seen that yet? <laughs> no. And the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Amen. And shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so there's an interesting thing that the Lord does in scripture. He's good on the stopwatch, which means that he allows things to take place and then he puts things on pause and then he starts them again. God, throughout the scriptures, you can find different uh, things that have taken place where the Lord's timing is different than our timing. And I'm going to show you one of those today, actually within the 70th week prophecy in the first seven weeks that we're going to look at. It's a completely different thing than you, you would think in, in relation to this. So the Lord uses his stopwatch in relation to Israel in many instances. So he gave them the spirit. So does that mean that the Lord could have actually established his kingdom on that day, at the end of that 60 and 9th week? <laughs> well, sure he could have. I'm glad he didn't because it gave us an opportunity to be saved and so forth. Amen. But do you know something? He could have at that point, but he knew that Israel was going to reject their king. And so what he did is he turned his attention towards us as, as, as the Gentiles. Well, not only that, but the church being saved. And he gave us a portion of that promise that he was going to give to Israel when he established his kingdom. And that's why we got the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Bible tells us in the New Covenant, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, that when Israel is going to, at the end of the tribulation are going to be saved and turned to Christ finally and be ushered into the kingdom that the Lord is going to give them his Holy Spirit and no longer will they ever say, ask each other, do you know the Lord? Because they will all know him perfectly. And that's going to happen at the end of that 70th week. Amen? And so we're at a very specific time right now, a very special time where the Lord has given us this, this uh, great privilege to have his Holy Spirit dwelling within us where that same spirit that he's going to pour upon Israel is now working through the local assembly. Amen. So important that we don't quench him and we don't grieve him in his work in the church. Amen. And so um, let's move on here. So basically, 
I want to look at these divisions here, and maybe I can help you understand some things in relation to this. The first one is seven weeks. So in this passage, go to verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Now in total, that's 69 weeks. But the Lord, uh, because this is the way he wants to do it, he chose to give it to us in two sections. He says, I want to show you two sections of time, but the end of this 69 weeks will still end up at the same spot. But he says, Messiah the Prince is going to come after seven weeks and three score and two weeks. And so he kind of causes the division there that we need to take note of. Then so, this is going to be the time, this seven weeks, this first section within the first period there of seven weeks is the time it's going to take to restore Jerusalem the city back the way that God wanted it. And so we're going to look at that a little bit right now. So I want to show you this. I don't know if you can see that. There it is. <coughs> I created this. Now, this is interesting. I want, I want to leave that up there. Um, number one, Cyrus gave the decree that started the 70-week prophecy. Now, there are those that will disagree. They'll say, no. It was Artaxerxes with Nehemiah that started the prophecy. I disagree because throughout the scripture, you have Cyrus being lifted up. And even 150 years back, you have him mentioned by Jeremiah the prophet. It's a very important decree that's happening here. It's the one that kicks off everything. And I'll explain to you in just a little bit. And so Cyrus, um, letter A underneath that, this commandment was given at the end of the 70 years of captivity. And I already explained that to you, but in Ezra 1 verse 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I will tell you that the Lord touched this king's heart about that temple. Amen. And that's a decree that took place here at, at the beginning. That's at 539 BC. Uh, I'm going to read to you Ezra 5 verse 13. It says, but in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the same king Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God. And the vessels also of gold and of silver and, of, and the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them into the temple of Babylon, those did Cyrus the king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered unto one whose, whose name was Shashbazar, whom he had made governor. And said unto him, 
Take these vessels, go carry them into the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be built in its place. Then came the same Sheshbazar and, and, la- and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And since that time, even unto now, hath it been in building, and yet it is not finished. Now therefore, if it seemed good to the king, let there be a search. Okay, I'm going to go into that later, but there's another account there. Letter B, Cyrus's decree was prophesied by Isaiah approximately 150 years earlier. We already looked at this, and so I'm not going to go there right now. Uh, we'll move on. Um, unless there was something I wanted you to see there. Leave me a second. No, we're going to move on. All right, so. Uh, number two. King Darius, in his second year, decreed to continue rebuilding the temple. This continued for 35 years up to the time of Darius's death in 485 BC. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background to this particular decree. Letter A is this. The building of the temple in Jerusalem was under constant opposition. Constant. From the day they put the shovel in the ground, the devil attacked that work. Amen. It's kind of like your church. Whenever you're trying to do something for God, there's always opposition. And, there, and when things are going well, that's when the devil attacks you. Amen. And so we got to remember that as we go forward in the, in the work of God. Israel's adversaries sought to frustrate their purpose in building the temple and made accusations against them to King Darius. And you see that in Ezra 4 verse 1. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of that guy, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. So this group of people, they thought, hey, we like your God. Let us help you build that temple. And Israel said, guess what? The building of this temple belongs to his people to build this temple. And so we don't need your help. It's kind of like when someone comes along and says, hey, I want to do this. And you say, well, you can't do that right now. And then they get offended at you. Amen. Happens in the church all the time. Same thing right there. Except, you know, well, there's no except. It's actually the same thing. Amen. So it goes on to say here, then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. In other words, they did things to actually slow down the work of God to weaken the hands of the people doing the work. And like I told you last week, in the church, you know who the critics are? The ones that don't do anything. And you know who they criticize? The ones that are doing everything. It's always like that. It'll always be like that. This... It's prophecy, my friend. <laughs> Amen. That's what it is. So it goes on to say here, it says, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So now they hired people. It was a conspiracy to talk to people and to hire them to cause them to say things against the rulers and against the people of Israel to stop the building of the temple. Wicked, huh? 
Think about that next time you want to stop the work of God. Amen? This is serious business. This is way beyond me. This is way beyond me as a pastor here. I want to tell you something. God is involved with this thing. God is here. you got to be careful. I've told you right from the beginning, you got to treat it as a fragile thing in your hands when you're, when you're touching the church of God. Amen? It's very, very careful that we have to be. And now letter B. No, where was I? Yeah, letter B. The building stopped after two years by the order of Artaxerxes. So these people, it says in the last verse, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And so what you see here, put that chart back up there, son. What you see here is Cyrus's decree, the green there, they worked for two years. And then the work stopped. Why? Because it's Artaxerxes, 537 BC, he made that proclamation Stop the work of God. All right. So, Ezra 4, verse 23. Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and, and Shimshai, the, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. So, they managed to trick the king into giving a letter to stop the work. And as soon as he got that letter, boy, you couldn't slow them down. There's nothing that would have stopped them from running down to Jerusalem. Hey, guys, look, look, look. Amen? That's wicked. That's wicked. And so it goes on to say here, then ceased the work of God, of the house, the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, let her see. King Darius makes a search of past decrees and finds the decree of Cyrus and issues an order to continue building. Now, this is good. Ezra is a very exciting book, by the way. Ezra chapter 6, it says this. Then Darius, the king, made a decree, and search was made in the house of rolls. So what happened here is the children of Israel were being prompted by the preachers. Haggai and different prophets saying, hey, guys, what are you doing? You're not doing the work of God. And so some of these got a little boldness in them. They says, hey, let's, let's start doing this. But immediately, the opposition caught them and said, hey, you can't be doing that. And they went to Darius, and they tried to get him to stop it again. But you know what? Someone encouraged him. Why don't you look into the records? And that's what he did. It says... And search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Akmatha in the palace that, that is in the province of the Medes a roll. And therein was a record thus written. In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof, and he gives a bunch of details there, and about the, the vessels and the, uh, the gold and silver and so forth. And, and so it says, let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and of the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. So he says this, Moreover, I make a decree, 
what ye shall do to the elders of those Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. And so what happens here is he, he not only says continue the work, but he says, hey, let's take up the taxes and let's f- give these guys the money they need to do the work. Can you imagine these guys just, <laughs> you know, steam coming out of their ears that someone's helping the house of God? Amen. Jealousy. Then he says, also, think about this. Also, I've made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house and being set up, let him be hanged thereon and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and the people that shall put to their hand to alter and destroy this house of God, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. And so there you go. Uh, They prospered. The Bible says, and the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel, according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month, Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. And so what you have there is Darius making that decree, and now... In 519, and they build for 35 years. So they got 35 years of construction happening here, all right? But at the end of that, Darius dies, and the work stops. So think about this. This is all laid out so specifically in Scripture. The Lord is telling us exactly what's happening within the dynamics of this construction. Amen. Would he have had to? No, except he's trying to tell us something. You know, if you would look from the 539 BC to the time where the walls were complete in 432 BC, you would have 108 years. That does not fit 49 years. (laughs) 49 years is less than 108 years. (laughs) Amen. But if you count up the times that that Israel was simply working, 2 plus 35 plus 12, what do you get? 49. (laughs) Amen? That's that's why I say the decree, the commandment that began the 70th week prophecy was the commandment of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Amen? But many people, because of this problem of the 108 years, what they would do is say, oh, it couldn't be that, so... Let's uh, choose Artaxerxes that was closer to the time. Well, the problem is, you choose Artaxerxes, you're still not exactly right on the time, but they say it's closer. Well, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, Closer doesn't matter. This is accurate. Yeah. This is accurate. Amen? And so it's very interesting. So number three, King Artaxerxes in his 20th year, 444 B.C., commissions Nehemiah, to finish the construction of Jerusalem. Remember, Nehemiah was told about the the state of Jerusalem and it was sitting in in shambles. The walls were torn down. He began to weep. He says the enemies could walk right in. And so it took that and the king to make another decree. So three three decrees took place here uh, within the building of Jerusalem. 
in 444 BC. And that's why in, in chapter two, verse one of Nehemiah, it says, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before sad in his presence. And the king says, why are you sad? Because you don't get sad in front of the king. He could kill you, <laughs> amen. And he was sad because he heard that the walls were torn down. And so there we see the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Um, now, Nehemiah 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, even unto the second and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. He was there for 12 years building Jerusalem and the walls. So that's pretty neat. Isn't that neat? <laughs> you know, so we have two sections of the time, 22 years and 41 years that the Lord says, I'm not counting that because this is about my people, Israel. Amen? Very interesting stuff. Now, letter B. The completion of this seven weeks, 49 years, is marked by the completion of the building of Jerusalem. And that we just looked at. Um, so I have... I just have a breakdown of that, uh, what I just said here. So the first pause occurred two years later, 537. The clock started again in the second year of Darius, or 519. The clock stopped at the death of Darius in 485 BC. This gives us 35 years. And then the clock started again with the commission of Nehemiah by Artaxerxes in the 20th year of his reign. The clock completed the first phase of the prophecy 12 years later at 432 B.C. This gives us 12 more years off the clock. And then do the math. <laughs> 2 plus 35 plus 12 equals 49 years. Amen? That's your first seven weeks. Right there. From the, from the proclamation of Cyrus the king. Now number two. The 60 and 2 weeks. Now 62 weeks times seven is 434 years. So we had 49 years, now we got 434 years. I'm going to give you a little bit of, I'll give you a chart here as well. I created, uh, so the seven weeks are on that end. Now I've added the 62 weeks. Then you see that there's an interval and then you've got the one week, which is the 70th week and that's the tribulation. And so this is the chart that shows that. And I'm going to explain this to you right now. Letter A the 62 weeks, or 434 years, begins with the completion of the walls, 432 B.C. So at the end of that seven-week period, that begins the 62-week period. Now letter B, the 62 weeks are completed at the birth of Christ. Folks, this is so exciting. <laughs> you know? Now I've read a lot of good authors. Um, one of them is, oh, what's his name? Anderson, I think it was that wrote a book, and he explained it, that the 62 weeks are actually completed when Jesus Christ uh, goes into Jerusalem riding the donkey, and they're saying Hosanna, and so forth. But folks, I cannot get away from the fact <laughs> that the birth of Christ is when the Messiah, the Prince, shall come. Amen? That is, and there's many things that can prove to you why it is that is the issue. Number one is because if you look at the decree being from Cyrus, then you have to look at it being the birth of Christ, the very year that he was born. Amen? 
you try pushing it up forward, well then sure. But it's interesting, each one of these decrees from the Old Testament, they actually fall on a major event in the New Testament, if you were to add that up. So that's kind of interesting too, that just shows that God is God, amen? So, letter B, the birth of Christ. Number one, adding 434 to 432 B.C., would bring us into A.D. 1, all right? Now, you'd say, wow, that's pretty close. I mean, that's got to be the right number. Well, except it's not. <laughs> you know, if you were to consider the month that this all happened in, it would actually be A.D. 1 that that would fall on. But this is the problem. Um, that's not an accurate date. The problem is that the Lord doesn't use our calendar. He doesn't use... 365 days a year, and every fourth year there's a leap year. <laughs> he has never used that throughout the scripture. What does the Lord use? 360 days. Amen? 12 months of 30 days, that's 360. Even actually, if you look up at the tribulation time in the future, he's using 360 days for the year. But here, he doesn't. Now, right now, we don't. We use 365. So what would happen right now if we would use 360 days a year, and that would be our year. Well, sooner or later, you'd have snow in July. Amen. <laughs> After time, if you just start losing your cycle of seasons, right? So they figured it out that the, the turning of the earth, the seasons, if you don't adjust that to 365, and on the fourth year you have the leap year, it'll throw off your seasons and the timing, you see. Why is that? Because throughout history, the Lord always used 360 days a year. And now all of a sudden, by the time of Christ, we've got an extra, something went off. Now that can, I don't know exactly what, but a lot of people speculate that when Hezekiah was going to die, and he asked for a sign, and he said, the prophet said to him, Isaiah, would you want the sun to go forward or back. He says, well, forward is no problem. He says, send it back, 10 degrees. So somehow the Lord changed the whole system of the calendar to show a sign to Hezekiah. And ever since that time, the year has been off. And so what that does is mess us up when we're looking for the year of the Lord zero. <laughs> Amen. When was Jesus born? Now, you'd say AD 1 must be close. It's not. Number two, um, the calendar years must be calculated in accordance with a prophetic calendar. So there's the, the actual calendar that we go by, but then there's God's prophetic calendar. God always counts his years to be 360 days and the months to be 30 days times 12. And so, um, number three. So 434, 62 weeks, Prophetic years is 156,240 days. To find the calendar years, we must divide that number by 365.25. See, 0.25 is a quarter. Every fourth year is a leap year, right? And so, which equals 427.76. Now, this would bring us to the calendar year of 5 B.C. 5 B.C. 
So we know that zero is not the year of our Lord. That's not when he was born. <laughs> and most people understand that. In fact, all scholars will tell you Jesus was not born in the year zero. <laughs> they chose that year, but they didn't know the year, and so they chose that year. But he was actually born 5 B.C. Now, how do I know that? Well, letter A, Herod the Great, who was ruling when Jesus was born, died in 4 B.C. So Jesus couldn't have been born in zero, amen, or one or two or three, or even four when we look at it. It has to be either five to seven, those two years, all right? So in Matthew 2, verse 3, it says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So he was, he was ruling at this time, and I, I took the wrong verse there. Letter B, Herod calculated the time of Christ's birth by diligently inquiring of the wise men. Remember that? See, Herod was wicked, but Herod was not stupid. <laughs> Amen? He was wicked, but he wasn't stupid. In fact, he was very smart that he could figure this all out, and he did by diligently inquiring. And so it says here in Matthew 2, verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, remember they came in, and he says, oh, when you find him, come back and let me know. Well, they didn't come back and let him know. They just, the angel told him, go the other way. And they went. So he felt mocked. And he was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Two years. Let her see. Herod chose to kill every child two years to newborn in an effort to kill this coming king. Meaning that the star could have appeared two years prior to the visit of the Magi or the wise men. So it could have occurred two years earlier. So it says here in Matthew 2.17 about this killing of children. Then was fulfilled that which is spoken by Jeremy the prophet saying... In Ramah was their voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that these children were going to be killed. The appearance of the star would reveal that the, that the Messiah was born after its appearance making the estimation of the age of the child between newborn and two years old at the time he spoke to the wise men. Now, number one, if Jesus, and I want to give you some, some scenarios here. Number one, you're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if Jesus was born when the star appeared in the east, and if Herod died the year he found out, Jesus would be born in 6 BC. All right? So the star would have appeared uh, when Jesus was born, the moment he was born. All right? Number two, if the appearance of the star called the wise men to worship the coming king, giving time for them to reach Bethlehem by his birth, they would have spoken to Herod around the time of his birth. All right? So Jesus would have been born right then because the star would have appeared and would have brought them there for the birth where they could have worshipped him 
at that point. And a lot of people, when they have their nativity scene, the wise men are there, right? <laughs> you know? And so, hey, I'm not going to give them such a hard time because there is some things that prove that it could have happened that way, but I don't believe it was. I believe our right one was the third one here. If the star appeared the time that the child was conceived, he would be about a year old at the time the wise men arrived. If Herod died the next year, Jesus would have been born in 5 BC. Now, it would have taken at least a year for Herod to get furious and accomplish killing every child two years and younger. Joseph would have taken Mary and Jesus to Egypt in that time and would be living there at the time they received word that Herod had died and they could return to Nazareth. So it wasn't like when the, that Herod died the moment here because he had actually fulfilled what he had wanted to do in killing all the children. And then also Joseph and Mary were living in Egypt at that time when they got the word that Herod died and they could come back. Amen? So when you look at the evidence, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus Christ was born on 5 BC. And when you look at the 70th week prophecy, 432 BC, the walls were complete, 60 in two weeks, 434 years. You add that, it falls exactly prophetically on 5 BC. That's what's exciting about this. Amen. Terribly exciting. Terribly exciting. I want to show you this chart again. Let's go back there. So, there we go. Cyrus's decree, seven weeks. Jerusalem built, 432 B.C. 62 weeks go by. The birth of Christ, 5 B.C. And next thing we have there is our next point and that is the time after, number three, after the 69 weeks. So what's after 69? <laughs> 70. But why would he say, well, in the 70th week? Because the Messiah wasn't cut off in the 70th week. He very determinately used that terminology to show you that after the 69th week, there's going to be an interval where Jesus Christ is going to die. After, not in the 70th week, <laughs> amen, but after the 60 and 69th, all right? And so it says here in verse 26, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And so letter eight, there is a period of time that is referred to as after three score and two weeks. This infers an interval after the 69th week and before the 70th week. Letter B, the Messiah will be cut off during this interval. He'll be cut off. That means to cut down, cut asunder. Well, number one, this is referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But God commanded his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Number two, the Messiah is not cut off for himself. That means the Messiah would not die for something he did. That's why 1 Peter 2.22 says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Hebrews 7.26, For such an high priest became us, 
who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Amen? He didn't get cut off for himself. Oh, but how about Pilate's own testimony in John 18, verse 38? Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto him, I find in him no fault at all. He didn't get cut off for himself. Nothing that he did. But let it be, the Messiah would be cut off for the sins of his people. The substitutionary atonement, we call that. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. He got cut off for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. So he was cut off, not for himself, but for us. Let us see. God is drawing a bride for his son out of the world. This is the interval. So during this time now, between the 69th and the 70th week, God, the Father, is pulling a bride out of the world for his son. This is very important. In John 6, it says, No man can come to me except the Father, which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. Ephesians 5, to 32 gives us that whole account about how that, uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and on and on. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This is the great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I'm speaking about Christ and the church. (laughs) You see, in this time that we have, God has chosen to prepare a special bride for his son. That at the end of this particular time, before the 70th week, on that last day, he will come to get his bride and bring the bride home to the place that he has prepared for her. Amen? That's why the Hebrew tradition is when a man is betrothed to a bride that he first goes home and spends a lot of time preparing until the father says, go and get your bride, you're ready to go. And the bride doesn't know when that is. They're not texting one another every day. You see? And that's why we're supposed to be ever waiting 
Look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Ever since AD 70, it's been an imminent return of Christ. That's why I'm against the mid-trib rapture. I'm against the post-trib rapture because it totally destroys the doctrine of imminency and the picture of the bridegroom coming to get the bride. Amen? That's why in this passage it talks about how that, how that, um, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. So this whole time he's working in us and creating in us a pure heart and a, and a willingness to, to wait for him and excited to see him. The Bible says we'll get a crown of righteousness to those that love his appearing. Amen. You know who will love his appearing? Those that are allowing God to change their hearts and their lives and living according to, to, to the, the word of God. Amen? Not those that are living for themselves and doing what they want to do and being a thorn in the side of God's people. That's not what it's about. We've got to be careful because the Bible says when he comes, many of us will be ashamed at his coming. Like a bride that wasn't preparing herself or keeping herself right for the bridegroom and, and instead of keeping her clothes nice, instead of keeping her heart right, instead of being pure and keeping herself just for that bride, she went and played around and did stupid things and then when the bridegroom came, he found her and said, you, why couldn't you wait? Amen. I'll tell you, man, that is one of the greatest things that we need to understand in the local church today, that one day Jesus will come and he's going to look at us in that way. And it's going to be no game with God. The Father drew you out of the world to be a bride for his son and will be ashamed. Letter D, the regenerated are being translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians 1.12, it says, giving thanks unto the Father, which made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus said in Luke 11, verse 20, he says, But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come unto you. The Bible says, lest the man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. That's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is focusing on God's kingdom coming down to earth for the thousand year reign. The kingdom of God is spiritual and it begins at the new birth in you. And it's in righteousness and peace and holiness and that's already given to us and that kingdom authority has already been granted to us as his people after the 69th week. That's interesting because we're living in a time of empires where God gave over the, the dominion to the Gentiles for the kingdom of men. So what's he trying to do? 
He's preparing us for the kingdom. For the kingdom of heaven. Number one, Abraham received the promise of God's kingdom. We see that in Genesis 2, 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thee thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. In other words, Abraham was chosen to be the to bring in God's kingdom on earth. Think about that. Abraham was supposed to be the father of the nation that was supposed to rise up this great nation that would become the powerhouse of God's kingdom on earth. That was the promise given. Deuteronomy 24, 15 says that his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and set of his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the strangers, nor the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I will, comm- I will command thee to do this thing. When thou cuttest... I think I'm reading the wrong passage here. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. I gave you the wrong passage. Sorry about that. It's not good though. <laughs> Numbers 24 verse 15, it says this. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty fallen into a trance, but having his eyes open. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city." And so there we have Israel, once again, bringing in the dominion on earth. Number two, the children of Israel received the kingdom of men from God, but forfeited this kingdom authority, so God gave it to the Gentiles. <laughs> Think about this. They had in their hands the very authority of the kingdom of God on earth, and they gave it up for their little statues, their little pieces of wood, their little things that they were doing, and they didn't follow God. When David, when, when Solomon was being prepared for the king, this is what it said, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart, and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, Then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall all turn from following me, ye and your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. Wow. So 
God had every intention of bringing his kingdom through Israel to the earth. But yet they didn't obey. Jeremiah 27, <coughs> it says in verse 5, I've made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, but my great, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I've given it unto whom it seemeth meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his land come. Then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. It shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which shall not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord. <laughs> with the sword and with famine, with the pestilence, have, until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore, hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon. <laughs> God says, When I say Nebuchadnezzar is king, he's king. And if you've got any prophets that's going to say, Oh, we don't need to listen to him, he says, You're sorely mistaken. I have given dominion. To Babylon because you would not obey what I said. Number three, I'm just trying to give you, just trying to form in your mind a little, an idea of how God works in this whole kingdom philosophy, these empires that we're talking about, all right? Number three, Satan used temptation to seduce, to seduce God's people into error that finally provoked God to wrath and judgment, to ultimately remove the kingdom of men from Israel altogether and give it to heathen kings. <laughs> Satan wanted God to judge these nations. He wants him to take away the dominion from Israel. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Goes on to say, talk about forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Deuteronomy 5, 9, it says, Thou shalt not bow thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. What I'm telling you is this. God has always sought for a nation to be a light to this world. Within this interval, the 69th, to the 70th week, he has chosen what's called the church. But you know what? The opposition, the principles are the same. There are parameters. There are boundaries. There are things that we have to be careful of within our boundaries. Otherwise, the Lord will remove our candlestick. This doesn't mean that everyone here is perfect. Perfect. 
But what that means is this, is that when we do wrong, we get right. And when you do not get right, as Israel did for 490 years, he takes away the candlestick. And we cannot let that happen here. This is not about you being a bad person or a good person or someone next to you being worse than the other guy. This has to do with who's getting right with God. Who's getting right? That's what it's all about. You're no better than me. I'm no better than you. But Lord, help me. I go before him every day and say, Lord, if there's any sin in my life, please help me. And I repent. And I get it right. And folks, you better do the same because God's going to steal away everything that God wants us to have here. And that's why we have to make decisions. That's why we have to be tough on things. That's why we have to be careful. We don't allow sin to run rampantly in the church without confession, without repentance. I will not give up the candlestick for anybody in this room. In fact, I'll give everybody up in this room for the candlestick. Including my family. Do you get that? Folks, wow, let's move on. I'm getting excited. Number four, at the time of Christ's birth, Satan had brought every earthly kingdom under his darkness. Think about this. Luke 4, verse 5, what happened here? And the devil, this is the time where Jesus Christ brought him to the wilderness, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Every kingdom, when Jesus Christ was born, every kingdom was under satanic rule. All in darkness. Number five, through the new birth, we enter into the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom of men would be a nation that brings forth the fruit of the kingdom. See, this is interesting because we live in a very unique situation. (laughs) Never has there been a time where there have been countries that have lived separate of these empires that actually the Lord was placed in the center of it. Look at United States of America. On their dollar, in God we trust. That's not normal. (laughs) Especially when you see at the time of Christ, every kingdom was under satanic dominion. Well, what what did we do with it? (laughs) Not much. Not much. We became a missionary center for a while there. 
sent people out, tried to win the lost. God used the nation to protect us to be able to do that. Even today, we still have protections as God's people to go out and do the work of God. But ultimately, we know that when Satan regains dominion over Canada and the United States, you will no longer have the freedom to do so. That's the uniqueness of the time we live in right now. See, the kingdom of men is something that's always been fluid. And the Lord gives it to whoever he wants it to go to. But that has to coincide with the kingdom of God. And if people reject God and they reject the new birth and they reject the scriptures and they reject living right, and they, we're giving it over. We're delivering it into darkness. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to fight to keep it pure. If we don't, we lose it. And yet we can go for the next 30 years playing the game of singing the hymns and going through the motions, yet God is left. So forgive me if I get a little irate about sin in the church. What do you think God would do? How many nations has he brought down? How many churches has he taken out? He warned us in Revelation. Read all the letters to the churches. He says, because you didn't deal with Balaam, because you didn't deal with Jezebel, you let him run rampant in the church. And now you're going to lose it. Do you understand that? The principles are the same today for the local church as the kingdom. Because the Bible says in 1 Peter that we as the church are a holy nation. We're not Israel. But we're a very specific thing that God has created, a spiritual nation that exists on this earth, and we can lose it just like Israel did. And that's why in Romans he said, hey, be careful, because don't you think if I took out the natural branches that I can't remove the wild ones? And he does. Amen? That nation would have to bring forth the fruit of the kingdom. The fruit of the kingdom. <clears throat> That's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3, 9. And being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of the faith, God by faith. Following the word of God. Number six, Satan is seeking to hinder the gospel by infiltrating churches with sin, thereby bringing the church into darkness and further enslaving the world. Because that's what happens when our door closes. He is fighting us tooth and nail. I've never seen God work so clearly in a church as I have in the last two months. We've had seven families join, two of them by baptism. And I didn't have to prod anybody to do it. But you know what kicked that off? When I stood behind this pulpit and I said, we're going to deal with sin in the church. So I'm not going to stop. 
we're going to root it out. <laughs> and we're going to keep rooting it out until Jesus Christ comes again. Because if I can't have it be used of God in a way that's profitable, why in the world am I wasting my time? <laughs> why are you wasting your time? Amen? And I just need some good men and women to stand with me on that. <laughs> I hope it's in you. <laughs> Have you not seen what God has been doing? Has it not registered in your mind, folks? At the same time, we have the devil working from one side. We've got God just pushing things forward from his side. And there are things happening on the horizon, exciting things. I remember just talking to one person that was going to leave the church and wanted to leave and so forth. I said, I said don't do it. I said, don't do it because this is a great church. Yeah. It's going to be great. Oh, I was just pleading with this person. But that doesn't matter. It's just what I want. And if Jesus would come again, what would you do? Would you be ashamed of his coming? Or would you love his appearing today? How about if he come back in one minute? What would you have to do to get things right? What would you have to do to prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord? Amen. Maybe nothing. That'd be great. I'm ready, Lord. If you've been talking to God today, you've been confessing sin, you know there's nothing between you and the Savior, nothing between you and the people of the church, I'll tell you something, you are ready to meet him. But it's real, man, it's real. He's coming, it's coming! Amen. Oh, I hope we believe that. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. All power. Yeah. You mean more power than Nebuchadnezzar? All power. More power than the Grecian kingdom, than the Persian kingdom? All power. Oh, folks, and we're up here and we're preaching the word of God and we have a local church. You may not think this is more than a soccer club, but I'm going to tell you something. The God's eyes, he says, this is a part of my kingdom. Let's live like that's true. All power. Amen. And God's going to do it for us. He's going to do it for us. Let's bow our heads. The only solution is the return of Jesus Christ to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. We know that. But this interval, this interval, God gave us a specific calling. We cannot quit now. It's not about retirement. It's not about compromise. It's not about letting sin run rampant in the church. We have to do what God's asked us to do. Our king has made a decree. He has told us to fight for this. He has told us to take on the world and tell them about, the, about Christ. We have to keep our hearts right because the Bible says the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which would believe. And the Bible says that he has hid the gospel from their eyes through believers through believers that don't renounce the hidden things of dishonesty that are walking in craftiness. That's how he hides the gospel. That's how the devil is ruining it for the church today and ruining it for our purpose. 
Oh, that we would take this seriously. Oh, that we would get before God and say, Lord, use me. I want to be one of these people, God. I'm not going to be a quitter. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to turn to sin. I'm not going to turn to this world. I'm going to keep on until you come, Lord. We just got this little interval, this little time to do the work. We are a holy nation. Let's fight to keep it that way.